Please turn with me, if you would, to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5. Uh, this morning we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 5. We'll read those here in a second. Let me explain what we're doing today. Um, we are taking a few weeks, three, Lord willing, to do a mini-series on church leadership or spiritual leadership in the church. Just a mini-series. Now, for those of you who perhaps are not familiar with how we do things at Harbin's, Normally we preach verse by verse through books of the Bible, or we have been preaching through the life of Christ verse by verse, and that's expository preaching, verse by verse preaching through books of the Bible. But at the same time, there is seasons and times where we can step away and do a topical message, if you will, and that's what we're doing. We're doing a topical series on spiritual leadership. But let me say this, even in topical preaching at Harbin's, we want the text to drive the topic. So we're going to go to a text of Scripture today and let that drive our sermon. We want to practice what we call exegesis, and that is to pull out of the text what God is saying to us, what the authorial intent was of the text, and apply that to our lives, and avoid eisegesis, which is the opposite, and that's reading into the text what you want to see there. And the danger that churches can get into sometimes by going down the topical route is that you have a topic that's driving what you want to say to the church, and then you just sort of find scriptures to sort of back up that topic, and you can be tempted to then practice eisegesis and just read into the text what you want for your church at that specific time. So topical preaching isn't the norm for us here at Harbin's, but occasionally we do break away and do a topic, especially when it pertains to something going on in the church. And so the purpose now, the design behind these messages is to get our church ready for the potential of adding elders in the fall, adding more spiritual leadership in our church body. So basically there's three questions I want to answer this week and over the next two weeks. What is spiritual leadership? Who are spiritual leaders? And why do we need spiritual leadership? So the purpose, like I said, is to prepare us and to think, get our minds in the right place for the adding of leaders in our church, perhaps, Lord willing, this fall. Many of you know and have been praying since Deemer left back last year, a little bit over a year ago, many of you have been praying for our church, knowing that we'd like to add more eldership eventually, and I do believe we're inching closer and closer to that reality. But we've been moving slow, and I think that's good for us as well. So today we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 5. Let's begin in verse 1. So please stand if you would. 1 Peter chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. We're going to read down through verse 5 of 1 Peter 5. This is the word of the Lord. This is uh, written down by the Apostle Peter. But this carries the same authority as if Jesus were standing right here speaking these words. 1 Peter 5, verse 1. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray this morning as we go through this passage of Scripture, Lord, that you would help us to see what spiritual leadership in the church should look like. God, I pray that any preconceived notions that we have that are not in line with the Scriptures, that those would be set aside this morning. And that we would let your word drive us when we think about this topic. 
And God, we desperately need Holy Spirit. We need you to give us understanding and to give me the ability to speak this morning. And so we pray that that would be what you would do. We pray that your word would go out and not return void this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. Now this morning I have an illustration I'm going to do. It's a little bit more involved than some of my previous illustrations. So I've got a couple of young ladies that are going to help me come up here and do this illustration this morning. Olivia is one of my helpers. Olivia, I'm going to put some Play-Doh right here for you. And Ellie. All right. Now, here's the deal. I've got some Play-Doh right there for both of you. I'm going to have a, a race here, a contest, to see which of you can make what I'm going to ask you to make the quickest. Okay? You ready? Have you stretched? All right. Here we go. It's really simple. I want you to make a fish with your Play-Doh. Don't start yet. Don't. I want you to make a fish with your Play-Doh. Okay? On your mark, get set, Go! Done. Olivia's done. Look at that fish. Wow. What's, let me see yours. I didn't even finish it. Oh, my goodness. Look at that. Isn't that beautiful? Yes. Uh, now, do you think maybe she had an advantage over you? Yeah? You didn't know about that, did you? No. See, Olivia has a mold with her here that she used to make her fish to come out so nice and pretty. That's like an angel fish. Very good, Olivia. I just don't know what that is, Ellie. I can't, can't really tell. Now, you were at a disadvantage here, weren't you? Because she had this mold with her, which allowed her to make it a lot more quickly and to make it a lot more pretty than you had, or this cookie cutter, whatever this is, all right? Now, I'm using that as an illustration this morning. The Bible gives us the pattern for biblical leadership. Here's the deal. A lot of church leadership looks like this these days, all right? Instead of, you squished it. You messed up my illustration. Thank you. Instead of looking the way it should look. When we look at the scriptures, there's a pattern, a very clear pattern the scriptures give us for church leadership. I honestly don't understand why church leadership is such an issue in churches in America today. Because the Bible is very clear about how it should be structured, how it should be patterned. Now there's some nuances there as to how you interpret this or that in regarding church leadership. But for the most part, we see very clearly in scripture how it should be patterned. And so churches should be able to take the scriptures and go, put it right on the way leadership should look in the church. And it should look like what the Bible describes. But unfortunately, so much, that's much better, Ellie. Good job. And see, man can come up with their own pretty good looking leadership, right? But it's still not the biblical pattern, all right? You guys can have a seat. Thank you very much for helping me with that illustration. Basically, what I want to do the next three weeks, including today, is to take the scriptural cookie cutter and boom, let it come down on Harbin's. I want us to look like what the Bible looks like in regards to church leadership. Now, spiritual leadership in the church these days has fallen on hard times. Unfortunately, many people who call themselves Christians are unwilling to follow biblical patterns for church leadership. And I think there's a number of reasons for this. Now, I think, if I remember correctly, I put in your notes four reasons for this. So let me just real quickly give you four reasons why I think that spiritual leadership has fallen on hard times in our day and age. Number one is simply the culture that we live in. Why do we often fail to follow the biblical pattern for spiritual leadership in the church? Part of it is our culture. Even as Americans, we believe in individualism, right? 
that we're these rugged individualists and we don't need authority over us. I mean, our, our very nation was born out of rebellion. Now, it was a good rebellion, I believe, against tyranny. But our nation was born out of rebellion. And with that American spirit, there seems to be a constant questioning of authority. And it's part of our culture is to question authority. And I think it sort of reached its peak in the 60s. And, and ever since then, it's just sort of carried along where all authority is questioned. You see, our founders certainly led us in a rebellion against tyranny. But they also set up structures within our culture, within our nation, to where there was authority in place. But we're now at a place in our world, in our society, where we think all authority needs to be questioned. And any type of authority over us, we bristle against. So part of it's our culture. So perhaps this morning, you, you or I struggle with the biblical idea of church leadership because of our culture. Or maybe because of conflict. Maybe you've been at a church before where there has been conflict that was a direct result either of the leadership that was in place or a lack of leadership that was not in place. And so you come out of being hurt from conflict. Uh, maybe there was authoritarian leadership that was, that was, that was very harsh upon its, upon its people. Maybe there was just very loose leadership that allowed everything to go crazy in the church. Whatever it might be, conflict is a reason some people have a hard time even embracing any idea of biblical leadership. The third C is this, customs. Maybe you come from a denominational background that just doesn't like what the scriptures have to say about the structure of leadership in the church. We've always done it this way. Baptists don't do it that way. Well, we're not going to do it that way because Baptists don't do it that way. Instead of saying, what does the Scripture say about church leadership and how should we mold our church's leadership around that? And fourthly, complacency. Many people just don't care about what the Scriptures say about church leadership. And they don't know. They don't care and they don't know, even though it's so clearly taught all throughout the Scriptures. Now I'll confess to you. I have been subject to all four of those. There was a time in my life when I even served under unbiblical uh, leadership structures in the church. And I didn't question it. Just assumed, well, that's just the way we've always done it. It works. I mean, pragmatism rules our day, doesn't it? As long as it works, don't mess with it. And so I think these four C's oftentimes lead us to bad leadership in the church or cause us to be unwilling to look at the biblical pattern and accept it. So this morning I want us to examine the Word of God, what it says about spiritual leadership in the church. Now I've used the phrase spiritual leadership for a reason. There are two different types of leadership in the church. There are servant leaders, which are deacons, and there are spiritual leaders, which are the elders, pastors, overseers, that lead the church in the spiritual direction of the church. In this short sermon series, we're going to focus on this second category. Elders, pastors, overseers. And we're going to look at what the spiritual leadership of a pastor should be in the church. Now, this does not mean that pastors are not also servant leaders. Pastors should be servant leaders. Nor that deacons are not spiritual. Okay, I don't want to imply that. That deacons aren't spiritual and that pastors don't serve. Not at all. But in a broad sense, there's these two categories. And those were first established in Acts chapter 6. In Acts chapter 6, there's two basic leadership roles that are put in place in the church. Now, you remember the context of Acts chapter 6. There were some widows who were not being fed. The Hellenistic widows were not being ministered in the daily distribution of the food. And so there was a conflict that arose in the church. And so this is what the apostles said. It's what we read in Acts chapter 6, verse 2. It says, And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, 
It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. So the earliest prototype, if you will, of church leadership was established here in Acts chapter 6. The spiritual leadership of the apostles as teachers in the church would eventually give way as the apostles passed away to eldership. And these seven men chosen to serve would be the model for what would become known as deacons. And deacon simply means servant. Verse 2 there says that they couldn't give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. So their spiritual leadership and their servant leadership. So by the time the church is well established, as we see Paul teach in, in 1 Timothy 3, he gives instructions to the right order of the church, and he speaks of two offices. The office of overseer, which is an elder and a pastor, and the office of deacon. Deacons were to serve the physical care of the church, practical things like administration, maintenance, finances, helping facilitate the logistics of caring for those in need. Meanwhile, the overseers or the pastors and elders, and I'm going to use those words interchangeably all throughout this sermon, On the other hand, they were to lead the church in the spiritual care of the church. Prayer, teaching, preaching, vision, and direction. So when I say spiritual leaders this morning, I want you to understand that I'm referring to pastors in the church. The elders or the overseers. And so let us turn now to our passage that we just read this morning. And the first thing I want us to notice is I want you to notice the number of spiritual leaders. 1 Peter 5 verse 1. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness to the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. So I exhort the elders, plural. Many people in the church today question the concept of a plurality of elders, pastors, overseers, partly because of the things I mentioned earlier. Our culture, our customs, our culture is a culture where we have to have strong CEO-type leadership, head coaches, presidents. And it makes, us, it makes it hard for us to understand or even grasp a plurality of leaders heading up or leading the church. And then our custom, at least in Southern Baptist life, has been that each church has its own senior pastor who is the main man leading the show and he has some paid staff under him. But again, our culture and our customs can easily lead us astray. We don't set up church leadership based upon CEO models or on just because we've always done it that way. So we can see clearly in the New Testament that the church was led by a plurality of elders, pastors, and overseers. Acts chapter 14, verse 23. And when they had appointed elders, plural, for them in every church, singular, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Acts chapter 16, verse 4. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and the elders, plural, who were in Jerusalem. So this group of elders who were at the church in Jerusalem. Acts twenty seventeen. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders, plural, of the church, singular. He called the elders, plural, of the church in Ephesus to come to him. And this was Paul when he was traveling back to Jerusalem. Titus 1.5, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders, plural, in every town, singular, as I directed you. In James 5, verse 14, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders, plural, 
of the church, singular, and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. So it seems that God has very clearly designed spiritual leadership in the church to consist of a multiplicity of elders. So let me just say a side note here. As I've been praying about adding elders to Harbin's and talking to different people about it, and I've gotten people asking me questions and people making me think through things really well and ask me good questions. And there's been questions like, well, why do we need more elders right now? Do we need more elders? My friends, in my mind, the need for more elders doesn't drive why we want more elders. We want more elders because we want to be biblical, period. So whether it's a church of 20 or 200, we want elders, plural, in the church. So that's what we see in the New Testament clearly taught. Yet even amongst the plurality of, of, of elders, the Bible seems to indicate leadership or even headship amongst the elders. Leadership amongst equals. There seems to be leadership among the elders represented in, in Scripture. Timothy is apparently the leader of the elders in the church in Ephesus. Titus was apparently the leader of the elders in the church in Crete. In Revelation 2 through 3, we read seven letters written to the angel of the church of, and then it says the angel. There are apparently uh, elders who were leaders in, in those churches. And we have James, who seems to be the clear leader amongst the elders in the church in Jerusalem. You remember in Acts chapter 15, when the whole issue of Gentiles coming into the church was dealt with at the Jerusalem council. And so they have people bringing testimony of what God has done amongst the Gentiles. The apostles speak. We have, we have Peter and uh, Paul and Barnabas speaking. And then in Acts chapter 15, verse 13, it says this. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. Now let me pause right there. What does James begin to do? He begins to teach from the word, right, at this point. He says, listen, we've heard everyone's testimony. Now I'm going to preach to you a little bit here. And this is the elders and the apostles gathered as they're discussing this issue. Acts chapter 15, verse 16. So he's, he, now he's preaching from the Old Testament. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. That the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. So I'm going to pause again right there. So James goes to the scriptures to defend the inclusion of the Gentiles into the body of Christ. Then it says this in Acts chapter 15 verse 19. Therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. And then they give them a letter and they craft a letter that was going to be sent to all the Gentile churches. So there's apparent leadership here where James steps up and says, okay guys, Let's consider the scriptures, and here's my judgment. And it says in the passage here, in verse 22 of Acts chapter 15, that it seemed good to all the apostles and the elders and to the whole church to choose from among them and send some men to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. So we see this leadership structure in the church of elders dealing with spiritual issues in the church, but even amongst the elders, there being those who take some leadership. But, but who among the elders would take leadership? Well, I think it's most likely the elders who were entrusted with the main task of teaching and preaching to the church. 
1 Timothy 5.17 says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. So Paul seems to be teaching young Timothy that there's some in the church amongst the elders who definitely need to be taken care of and provided for financially because they're the ones in charge of preaching and teaching. Now, we know that all elders should be able to teach, and we'll talk about that some next week. But we see here there seems to be those in the Scriptures, Timothy, Titus, and James, who their role was to teach and to preach, and therefore they were leaders amongst the elders. So I believe that there is a plurality of elders and there's leadership amongst elders, but that can only happen when there's spirit-led humility, meekness, and mutual submission within the body of elders. It's a God-designed, spirit-wrought leadership model. So here's how it would work. A story I heard recently of a pastor who was wanting to make a decision for the church, and he had a body of elders. He had a group of elders, and he's the main preaching, teaching elder. He's sort of the face of the church, if you will. And they're making decisions about a big purchase that they want to make of some more land to expand a building to try to reach more people in the community. And he said he had prayed about it and thought about it and really wanted to do it. But the rest of the elders were not on board. They did not feel comfortable about it. They felt a check in their spirit, if you will. They all prayed together, and still they could not come to one accord. Most of the elders were against the purchase of the land. So this pastor simply said, okay, I'm going to submit to the elders in the church. He wasn't going to force his way. He knew that God designed a multiplicity of elders, and and even the elders in charge of teaching and preaching the Word are still sinners who make serious mistakes And therefore, it's great to have other men around you to say, wait a second here. This isn't the right path for us to go down. So that's the picture, I believe, of biblical eldership in the scriptures. This is the model that I believe that we are called to try to follow. It's a God-designed, spirit-wrought leadership model. That's why you can't find it in the world. Shame on the church for trying to copy corporate America when God gave us a much better model that glorifies his spirit-led work in the church instead of glorifying the management skills and strategies of men. Now I want you to notice in this passage of scripture not only the number of elders, but notice the name, the names of the spiritual leaders. And what I mean by that is the titles given to them. Titles didn't start with N, so that's why I chose names. Notice the names of the spiritual leaders. There's three names given. Elder, shepherd, and overseer. Shepherd is pastor. Elder, shepherd, pastor, and overseer. These are the names used interchangeably in the scriptures for the pastoral office. And all three are present here in this text. Look what it says. So I exhort the elders among you. And that's the Greek word presbyteroi. Okay. I I exhort the elders among you. And that's where we get the word presbyter, by the way. And this is the most commonly used word in the scriptures for the pastoral office, the word elder. Some Baptists get their feathers ruffled when we start talking about we have elders at our church. Why are you using that Presbyterian word? No, actually we're using this word because it's scriptural. It's actually the most used word for the pastoral office in all of scripture. So, elders. And then he says, as a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Now look at verse 2. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Okay, this is the Greek word poimen. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. And it simply is translated pastor or shepherd. We use the English word pastor as well. 
And then it goes on to say in verse 2, exercising oversight. And this is the verbal form of the Greek word episkopos. Or you might recognize that. The Episcopalian church, if well, uses that word episkopos, which also translates into English as the word bishop. So we have these three titles given here, and we see the same three titles in Acts chapter 20 and in other passages of Scripture. And so there's elders, shepherds, overseers, and they all function together. It's all the same thing. Now, I think the reason the Scriptures does this, that God chose to do this, is because each one of these titles helps us to see something about the pastoral office. So that's what I want to look at now when we talk about these different titles. First, I want us to see the title of elder, and it corresponds to spiritual maturity. Elder corresponds to spiritual maturity. The fact that the word elder is also used in in its more natural sense to refer to those who are older or those who are more mature in life tells us that its usage here in the spiritual sense for the church is related to spiritual maturity as opposed to physical maturity. Now, it is true that we should take into consideration that many of those who are physically our elders in the church very well may be also those who are more spiritually mature. But it may not always be the case. There are some who may be younger in their years but more mature in the Lord. That was the case with Timothy, 1 Timothy 4.11. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, and in faith, and in purity. So I don't know what was going on in the church in Ephesus where Timothy was a pastor, but perhaps there were those who were questioning his leadership because he was such a young guy. Maybe that's what was going on. So it makes sense when we look at the elder qualifications in 1 Timothy chapter 3, which, Lord willing, we will look at next week, that it says nothing about physical maturity, but it says a lot about spiritual maturity. 1 Timothy 3, 6. He must not be a recent convert. Or he may be puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. So the scriptures teach us about spiritual maturity. And I think this word elder here means that those who are going to lead the church need to be spiritually mature. Because of that, the aim of the rest of the verse at the very end of this section we read today, verse 5 of 1 Peter 5, I believe it's talking about those who are young in the faith. Verse 5, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Now, I may be wrong on that, but I think it's probably referring to those who are young in the faith, to be subject to the elders. If he's not talking about physical elders here, physical uh, maturity, but he's talking about spiritual maturity, then it makes sense that he's talking here about spiritual youth as well. So who should the church look for when trying to identify elders? They should be looking for those who are spiritually mature. The spiritually mature are the ones who should be able to teach in the church. Hebrews 5, 11. Listen to this passage. About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Friends, a sign of spiritual maturity is whether or not one is able to teach. And so it shouldn't surprise us that 1 Timothy 3 says that an elder should be able to teach. It's a requirement of eldership. 
So spiritual leaders in the church must be mature in the faith, for they are elders. But they're also called shepherds. So what do shepherds correspond to? Shepherd corresponds to spiritual responsibility. Spiritual responsibility. Verse 2. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Okay, this image, in my mind, is one of the most beautiful images of, of what it means to be leading the church, is that you are a shepherd. Those charged with the spiritual leadership are shepherds, which shows what responsibility they have. Namely, to protect and to provide for the sheep. God's people are called sheep all throughout scriptures. And it's a quite apt description, isn't it? I mean, sheep have the tendency to be directionless, helpless, and sometimes mindless. But God, by a great mystery, chose from among the sheep some to help guide the flock. Two things shepherds do. They protect and they provide for the sheep, as I already mentioned. For pastors are to protect the flock. Acts 20, verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. From among your own self. This is Paul speaking to the Ephesian elders. He's actually saying here that even amongst the elders there will rise come some who end up trying to lead the flock astray. Another reason for a multiplicity of elders right there. Because any elder, any pastor is susceptible to being deceived or deceiving others in the process. Any pastor. And so we read here that the pastors are the shepherds and they are to protect the flock. Later here in 1 Peter chapter 5, we read that our adversary, the devil, prowls around like a lion seeking someone to devour. Shepherds, pastors are given to the church to protect them from Satan's devouring doctrines. 1 Timothy 4.1 Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. Do you realize people can come into the church and begin to teach the teachings of demons. And it is the pastor's job to identify those teachings and protect the flock. So Paul urges young Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2. He says, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time will come, is coming, when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. But shepherds aren't just protectors of the flock. They also provide for the flock. They lead them to water. They, they lead them to places for grazing. They tend to their wounds. They provide for their health. Look at Paul's example for us in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 1. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. Listen to that. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. A shepherd knows his sheep and comprehends their spiritual maturity, and he knows what they're ready for. It reminds me of two examples of pastors that went into churches that needed a lot of work and a lot of healing. One pastor went in and he understood that his church was very, very shallow theologically. 
And so he began to teach them slowly but surely and didn't start using labels and theological labels that might cause confusion or cause anger or whatever else. Just carefully, patiently taught the Word of God year after year. And all of a sudden the people began to get stronger and deeper. And all of a sudden they began to ask, well, what do we call this set of doctrine here? And he was able to give them labels to understand things better. And the church grew. As opposed to another pastor who I know, who graduated from seminary about the same time I did, went into his very first pastorate, saw that they were spiritually anemic, and he decides, I'm just going to give them a dose of Romans right away. And he goes through Romans, preaching as hard as he can, preaching these doctrines that some people have never, ever heard of before, and he was fired within three months. He was gone. Because he didn't shepherd. A shepherd looks at the flock and says, they're not ready for this yet. I want to give you more solid food, but you are not ready. So let's take a little bit more milk here and let's work through it. And those that have been at Harbin's for a long period of time, there's only a few of you that have been here a long period of time, I think you've already seen that here. We now preach and teach at a different level than we did when we started off in a school six years ago. Part of that is by design, but part of it is simply the Holy Spirit guiding us and moving us as we mature. And so... This is what a shepherd does. A shepherd needs discernment. He needs wisdom. He needs patience. A shepherd is called to tend to and care for the sheep, not just guide them. That's what it means to shepherd the flock. The the word shepherd means to care for or to tend to. Look again at Acts chapter 20, verse 28. I've gone back to this passage several times today, and it will be a passage we look at in a couple of weeks. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God. That phrase, to care for, is the exact same Greek word, to shepherd the church of God. That's why I said Acts 20 uses these same words interchangeably. So you are to be an overseer and you are to care for the church of God, is what Paul is telling the Ephesian elders. So the call of the shepherd, therefore, is to love the sheep. Shepherds should love the sheep. Even those sheep that wander away frequently, even those sheep that stink, even those sheep that bite, it's not enough to love the task of shepherding. You have to love the sheep. So those young men that come to me and say, you know, I feel called into ministry, that's one of my questions for them. Do you love the sheep or do you just love preaching? It's not wrong to love preaching. I used to feel guilty about enjoying preaching. I enjoy preaching. I used to feel guilty about that. John Piper helped me not to feel guilty about that, all right? Love what God's gifted you to do, as long as you're doing it for his glory. But my point here today is simply this. If you love preaching and you love leading and you don't love sheep, you're not a shepherd. And that's the problem, I think, in a lot of churches sometimes. We have men in leadership positions that love being a leader, but aren't being shepherds. The shepherd must love the sheep, therefore the shepherd must be mindful of what the sheep are going through. One of the things that just burst out of all of Paul's epistles is his love for the churches and the sheep that are in them. He even says in 1 Corinthians 13 that you may possess all the other marks of spiritual leadership, but you're nothing if you don't have love. 1 Corinthians 13.1, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and knowledge, And have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I have and 
deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. How many men are leading the churches of America? And they've got all this giftedness, but they don't have any love for the sheep, and they've gained nothing. Nothing. Shepherds love. That's why they protect. That's why they provide for the sheep. I can only imagine that as Peter wrote this command here in verse 2 to shepherd the flock of God that is among you, I'm sure his mind went back a few decades earlier when he had been given that exact same charge. You remember it. John chapter 21. Peter was out fishing when he should have been out sharing the gospel. He's out fishing. He's got seven others with him because you know what Peter was? He was a leader. And when he got in that boat, seven other disciples got in there with him. He's out there fishing. They see the Lord Jesus comes up on the shore, calls to him. They realize it's Jesus. Peter jumps out of the boat and swims back. And they're sitting there on the beach with the risen Lord. And they're eating some fish. And Jesus asked Peter three times, do you love me? In verse 16, I'll pick it up here. This is the second one. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. It's the same word. Shepherd my sheep. It's the exact same word Peter uses as he's talking to the church. Shepherd my sheep. So here he is, a fellow elder now, encouraging these elders to do what the Lord had commanded him to do. Friends, if you love Jesus, then you love his sheep. And that doesn't just apply to pastors. If you love Jesus, First John tells us that. If you love the Lord, then you love the brothers. You love the sheep. Shepherd the flock of God. The shepherd cannot say that he loves Jesus if he doesn't love the sheep. So we see that spiritual leaders in the church are called elders, for they are to be mature in their faith. Like I said, this title is used interchangeably with the title of shepherd, or pastor would be what we call shepherds. Pastor which indicates that part of their task was to provide for and protect the sheep. That was their responsibility. But thirdly, we have the word overseer, which represents spiritual authority. Spiritual authority. Verse 2. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. As I said, this is the verbal form of the word episkopos, overseer. The word implies authority. This is the word used in the pastoral offices in, in the qualifications in 1 Timothy 3 and in Titus 1, Paul uses the word overseer here. We'll get to those passages next week, Lord willing. But I find it interesting that Paul uses the word overseer when he gives the list of elder qualifications. And I think the reason Paul does that is that he is saying that an elder's authority is bound up in his character. An elder is only authoritative so much as he looks like the chief shepherd, Jesus. Whether or not he's above reproach. Friends, I think we can all share instances where a person's authority, and it could be in the church or outside the church, but a person's authority has been undercut by their character. No matter how good one might preach or teach or cast vision, if his character is not above reproach, his authority is undercut. Now, another thing that undercuts pastoral authority in the church is the fact that there are a couple of bad understandings about church governance that sort of rule our day in America and these need to be corrected, so let me give them to you. Number one, we need to understand that the church is not a democracy. The church is not a democracy. That, that has been something we've placed upon the church based upon our American culture. 
Number two, though, we need to understand the church is not an autocracy, meaning a dictatorship. It's not a democracy, nor is it an autocracy. The biblical model is a beautiful balance. The type of authority and leadership in the church is unique, God-ordained, and it involves mutual submission within the body. God has given the elders, pastors, overseers the authority over the church, over the body. Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do it with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So there is elder authority, yet the elders exercise mutual submission by coming under the authority of the congregation as well. We see that in Matthew 18, when Jesus speaks of church discipline. How does he end it? Take it to the elders? No, he says if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. We also see in 1 Corinthians 5 that Paul does not blame the elders or the deacons for tolerating a man's sin, but he blames the congregation. And so we see in 2 Corinthians 2 that the majority, those in the congregation, had taken action to discipline an erring member in the church. And even in 1 Timothy 5, we see that there are instructions provided for bringing discipline against elders who stray. All this meaning that elders are not autocrats out there doing what they want to do. They still are also under mutual submission in the sense that they are under congregational authority to a degree as well. So this is a unique model. And it can only be sustained by prayer and the Holy Spirit. Now, there's people out there who say, no, 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 no. It's either got to be elder rule or congregation rule. You can't have this mixed thing that you're talking about here, Steve. I say you can because God thwarts all of our understandings of how things are supposed to work. He does it all the time, and he does it here in church leadership. He says, there are those that I've placed to be leaders over the church, but at the same time, they are men. They can sin. They can err in church. When they do, you need to make sure you're dealing with it. That's how he structured it in the Scriptures. The way I like to word it is elder-led Deacon-served congregationalism. But if we stopped our discussion about submission and authority here, we would be woefully unbiblical. Let me draw your attention to the end of the passage, but I'm going to start back at verse 2 and look at the whole context here. Verse 2, Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock, And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. And of course, the chief shepherd is Jesus, friends. It's actually one word in the Greek. Archipoimen. Which means arch-shepherd. Master-shepherd. Over-shepherd. So elders are not only to be mutually submissive to the congregation, but Peter reminds them here that most importantly, they are under the authority of Christ and are to be submissive to him. Hebrews 13, 20 calls Jesus the great shepherd of the sheep. Jesus himself calls himself the good shepherd. The pastoral role about Jesus, it was prophesied in Matthew 2, verse 6. It says, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people. Jesus is the ultimate shepherd and overseer. And even here in 1 Peter, earlier in chapter 2, we read these words. 1 Peter 2, verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you've been healed. 
For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So Jesus himself is called the pastor and bishop of your souls. So one of the best places that a pastor, elder, overseer can go to learn how to shepherd is simply to go to the Gospels and see and savor Jesus Christ, our arch shepherd. The elder's authority is not his own, but it flows out of the master shepherd, out of Jesus. An elder that forgets this will stray into very dangerous waters. If he begins to think that he's earned his position or that he deserves his position or that his position is something that puts him above others in the church in some sort of special class, then he is in danger and so are his sheep. Not only is the elder under Christ's authority... He, the elder, was put into his position by the Holy Spirit. Acts 20, verse 28, again, we read, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. The Holy Spirit was the one who made those Ephesian elders elders. So a pastor's authority flows from the Spirit of God under the authority of the Son of God. So to wrap us up this morning, we've looked at the number of elders, the names of elders, And now the nature of elders or the nature of spiritual leaders. And we will deal with this a whole lot more next week, Lord willing, when we get to 1 Timothy 3 and to Titus chapter 1. But there's three pairs in this passage here, and we're going to go over them quickly. We look here, it says in verse 2, Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. So here he has told him he's an elder, he is the pastor, and he is to oversee. And how are they supposed to do it? Here it says, the first thing it says is not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. The second thing says, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. And the third one says, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. So there's three pairs of how not to and how to shepherd the flock of God. First, not under compulsion. Now, Peter's not denying Paul's words regarding feeling compelled out of love to serve the body or to to share the gospel. But he's talking about using it in a negative sense. Elders should not feel manipulated into their roles. Okay, nor are they to do the task of shepherding simply because no one else will. Well, I guess there's no one else that's going to do this. I'll do it. Friends, that's one of the reasons I feel no rush to add elders. I don't want anyone to feel like, well, we need elders, I guess. I guess I'll do it. That's not the way I want it to work. 1 Timothy 3 teaches us that the office of elders should be aspired to. It should be desired. Elders must not be drafted into service, but should be happy volunteers. Serving, as Peter said, willingly, which is the way God wants it. That phrase, as God would have it, literally means according to God. In other words, if an elder is coming to the office of pastoral leadership in a way that pleases God, in a way that shows God is behind it, then he will come willingly and freely. Secondly, he should not be doing it for shameful gain. This is the same word used in Titus 1, where it says that an elder should not be greedy for gain. He's not a hireling. Is he to be paid? Maybe. If he is one of the elders given the primary task of teaching and preaching, then we can clearly say scripturally, yes, those elders should be provided for. This is clearly established in scripture. But again, he does not do it for the money. Instead, he does it eagerly. Now, we may think that that's sort of a strange contrast. Love of money versus doing it eagerly. But it's not a strange contrast. It makes sense. It's all about motivation. When he's doing it for the money, he's not eager to serve. He's not eager to feed the sheep. No, he's eager to get paid. But when, he, when his worries are not about the pay, he has the type of eagerness that God desires. Eager to see the sheep grow and to be cared for. 
So this word eagerly carries the idea of strong desire, strong motivation, and strong enthusiasm. Finally, he is to exercise his office without domineering over those in his charge. Friends, I'm afraid that this is unfortunately more of a common problem in the ministry than greed. For many pastors use their role to lord it over the sheep. The temptation for the pastor is to to let the authority invested in him by God go to his head, and thus he stops loving the sheep and forgets who the real authority is. Perhaps that's why Peter puts this verse about the chief shepherd after this one. When pride and power converge in a man's heart, he becomes a dictator and not a shepherd. Remember, church governance is not a democracy, but likewise it's not an autocracy. Remember James and John when they had arrogantly come and asked if they could sit at the right or the left hand of Jesus? Jesus says this, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus, our model, the chief shepherd, shows us what pastoring is actually like. And in 3 John, we have an example of a bad shepherd who is a dictatorial shepherd. Many people haven't read this passage of Scripture, but it's there. 3 John, verses 9 through 10. I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. Here is a man who had abused the office of elder and abused the the practice of church discipline in the process. So the church is to be marked by love, fellowship, humility, and mutual submission. Mutual submission. Because these sheep that the Lord has given shepherds, that he has put under our charge, that phrase there where it says over those in his charge there in 1 Peter, simply means those allotted to him. The sheep that are under the charge of a pastor have been allotted to him by God. They are given, not earned. Thus he is to lead them, not dominate them, as if they were subjects in his little kingdom. So I think that as you read the epistles and you read Paul's letters to Timothy, you see examples of what humble yet strong leadership looks like. 2 Timothy 2.22 Flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone. Able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. That they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. But who can do that? Only Christ can do that. The pastor who's honest will see these things and go, oh my goodness, how on earth am I supposed to be that type of person who corrects and rebukes and exhorts yet also is being patient and kind and gentle? And the honest pastor will realize that he can only do that to the degree with which he himself is submitted to the chief shepherd. And Paul said that if Timothy would lead the people in this way, he would be an example to the flock. So I'm reminded of what 1 Corinthians 11.1 1 says when Paul said, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. 
Any of you in here desire to go into the ministry? That verse should scare the socks off of you. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Friends, there are no perfect pastors. You will find faults in all of us. None of us will fit that mold perfectly. None of us. So don't put your hope in pastors. But put your hope in Jesus. Don't attach yourself to a church because I like his preaching. Find a flock that loves Jesus more than they love their pastor. Don't put your hope in under-shepherds. Put your hope in the arch-shepherd, the one who shed his blood for sinners. But while you put your hope and your faith in Christ alone, look for elders. Look for elders at Harbin's. Look for pastors in whom you see Jesus. That's what you're looking for. Those who are submitted to the arch-shepherd and are imitating him. Look for pastors who understand that they are shepherding the flock of God. This is not so-and-so's church. Steve's church, Ken's church, so-and-so's church, his church. This is not. I hate that when people say, oh, you go to Steve's church. No. If it's Steve's church, shut the doors now. Because I'm going to lead all of you to hell. Because I am not the chief shepherd. Jesus is the chief shepherd. It's his church, and by his grace, I'm leading you now. But if I begin to err and stray, get me out of here for your own health's sake. And in the process, let's look for pastors in the church. Look for elders. Look for men who imitate Christ. Follow their example. I pray that God will send us more pastors, but until then, I really ask you to pray for me. That God would break me of my pride in any areas where I think I'm something so that I might realize that he, my chief shepherd, is everything. That's why we need more elders here. We really do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I'm so glad that you didn't just say in your word, if you want to learn how to lead in the church then go find the most successful business owner. Go find the person who's able to lead the army as well. Go look at the emperor. See how he's managing the kingdom. That's not what you said. You gave us a model for leadership in the church that, quite frankly, is mind-blowing and would make no sense to corporate America. If we were to go and say, okay, this is the structure we're going to set up for a new company we wouldn't get any banks to fund that company. But you've chose to take what is foolish in the eyes of man and use it for your glory to exalt the power of Christ. Thank you, God. Thank you, Father, that Jesus is the one being exalted in the church, not preachers. But God, we live in a culture that loves to have celebrities. And Father, I'm afraid that even in a small church that a pastor can become a celebrity pastor. He doesn't have to have his face plastered on billboards and he doesn't have to have his face on TV to be a celebrity pastor. He doesn't have to have a podcast or a blog followed by a million people. He simply has to think that he's something that he's not. He simply has to begin to think much of himself. 
So any pastor is susceptible to becoming a celebrity pastor. And the church, Father, the church, all they have to do is begin to think he's something that he's not. So God, I praise you and thank you for this group of people here that make up Harbins, for those who are visiting this church and considering whether or not they want to covenant together with this flock. Lord, and until you add elders, I will do all I can to pastor this church. But Father, all I can isn't enough. I need Jesus. Father, I need your son. Jesus, I need you. In this church, as we wait for elders, they're going to do all they can to try to follow leadership in the church. But God, they can't do it either. They need Jesus. Jesus, they need you. Because we're all sinners falling way short of the glory of God. We desperately need to be made new. And we desperately need to be sanctified. So God, until that sanctification process is done, Lord, we know there will be imperfections in every leader and in every pastor and in every flock. But that's why we keep coming back to this book right here over and over and over again. And reading passages that some of us are familiar with so much, we've got it memorized and we don't think there's anything new you can teach us out of it. But God, we come back and we come back and we come back because Lord, we want you to shave away the imperfections in this body. And the imperfections in this pastor. We ask that you would do that. We ask, Lord, you be at this time now of response. As we sing a song to you. As we respond with offerings and prayer requests. We do all of this for the glory of and in the name of the Son. Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our chief shepherd and the overseer of our souls. In his name we pray. Amen.